0: Alright, this morning is October 10th, of course it's 2004, it's Sunday morning, and this message is called Powered by Potential. Uh, (coughs) Powered by Potential. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, so you can turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We're starting in the New Testament. Uh, Those of you in the Thompson chain, this will be page 1285. That's uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. Those of you that were here Wednesday night, um, we are starting to study the book of John. And I think that's really going to be a good thing. Everywhere I've ever done this, uh, it's been a blessing to the people. And to me, Wednesday, we will be back in the first chapter of John. This last Wednesday, we covered 1 John 1-18. through 18, And you'll hear elements of this in, in the message today. Uh, I mean, it's kind of what got me thinking along these lines about potential. Uh, you all in 2 Corinthians 5? Yes. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 10, we see the following words. It says, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." that each one may receive what is due him. For things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, that verse changed a lot about the way I thought about Christianity. Because I had been raised, at least my church life, from maybe 9 to 18, I had been raised in an environment where I was taught, once you said with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart, he was raised from the dead. From there on out, it was a reward ceremony for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that no matter what happened, no matter what you did, uh, you had nothing in store for you but rewards. Uh, This verse really, I remember in the first Bible I had, I took a pen and put a big question mark beside the word, whether good or bad. Those words, it, it began to really make me think. And then, as I started to study everywhere, I started to see this same principle. And uh, I had a choice to make. I had to determine whether everybody around me was wrong and the Bible was right, or whether the, the uh, Bible was wrong and everybody around me was right. And uh, thank God I chose correctly. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. You know, when Paul says since then, he's referring to the, the previous statement. <laughs> In light of the previous teaching, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those that take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. Here's the verse we're going to focus on today. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul came to a place in his life where he realized that every human being would stand before Jesus and give an account for the things done in their body, whether they were good things or bad things. This caused a fear of the Lord to grow in him. And he began to learn not to regard people according to a worldly point of view. Now, think about this worldly point of view. What's he talking about? This is no different than people today. In his day, they may have used slightly different things to measure people according to a worldly point of view. But this is when you're thrown into a group of new people and immediately you start to size them up. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you hear somebody's speech and decide, Oh, well... They're uh, not very educated. You see someone else's clothing, and you say, Ah, oh, they don't have any money. You look at the car another one drives, and say, Oh, he's stuck on himself. You know, it's when you begin to look at the things that are in someone's life and make judgments about them. You call this labeling, you compartmentalizing, categorizing, uh, clicks, whatever you want to call it. Paul had to learn not to regard people according to the worldly point of view. Why? because it's the most natural thing in the world to do. It occurs in nature. It occurs everywhere. What happens when there's one chicken that is born different than all the other chickens? It's cruel, isn't it? It's horrible. It's one of the things you can see sin at work in the world. Other people would look at this and say it's the survival of the fittest and the process of natural selection. I see it as the process of sin. It's the process of a decaying world. You know, Something's wrong with a society that throws out its weakest members. In your heart, you know that. If Steve walks up and slaps me you think, boy, that's a bad thing. But if you walked up and slapped Judah, you know it's an even worse thing, right? Yeah. Crimes against the weakest are something that is—it uh, stirs an emotion in you because inwardly, God put something in your heart that knows that that's wrong. It doesn't matter what culture you are in the world. You know that some things are worse than others. We live in a day when that's being dulled and our senses. We're becoming desensitized. You know, you could show Judah the movie Psycho that came out, uh, what, in the 50s? Mm -hmm. Or maybe 60s, 60s. And he probably wouldn't think much of that because he lives in a society where you turn on the news and you hear about worse than that. Uh, Even the cartoons portray scenes, you know, uh, that are as bad as that. But in its day, that was a shocking film. In its day, that was something that caused horror. You know, the movie Jaws, I, I grew up with that. I remember we had this big VCR that my sister broke. My dad's here, so I want him to know it was my sister that broke that VCR. She shoved pennies in it. You know, you've got to love that. Your father, you make six or seven hundred bucks to bring home this big Magnavox VCR. They were expensive back then. And the first thing your kids do is shove pennies in it. But we had the movie Jaws, and it made me so scared I didn't want to go swim in the swimming pool. We had a, a pool when we lived in California. I didn't want to get in it because I was scared that shark might get me in the swimming pool. Now, I know that's not rational. But today, after seeing Freddy Krueger and all the other things that are around, that movie barely makes an impact. You look at that same shark and it looks rubbery and fake. We have, we're like a frog that's been put in a kettle. They say, if you throw a frog in boiling water, it jumps out immediately. If you put it in a kettle and turn up the heat degree by degree over hours, it'll sit there till it boils to death and never jump out. You know, that's kind of what's going on. We're being desensitized. Well, having said that, as Christians, we need to look at people differently than the world looks at people. I want to look at a few examples of this sizing up in the Scripture and then think about how it applies to our life because we all do it. I... You know, there are people that I gravitate towards because they're easy to talk to, I like, and there are people that I have a hard time gravitating towards. You know, and I have to work on that because I want to be like Jesus. Let's look at Jesus, though. In John chapter 1, I told y'all, since we're studying the book of John, I can't help but think about examples in John. John chapter 1, this is page 1176 for those in the Thompson chain. Starting in uh, verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Look at this, written with an explanation point. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Now, I'll teach you all why he said that and why they were looking for this prophet Moses spoke about and all those other things, but not today. Here's the point. The first time that Nathanael hears about Jesus, the very first time, what does he do? He hears about where he's from and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is kind of like when you're... Uh, Maybe traveling through Europe, right? And you meet some people and immediately the sizing up begins and their family goes back with Lord this and that several generations and uh, they find out that you're a school teacher from Louisiana, you know? I remember Boots Garland was a teacher of mine and he was uh, hanging out with a a movie crowd at the time because the movie uh, about Pete Maravich called The Pistol had just come out and he had some scenes in it. And so he went to, to a restaurant uh, with some of the people from the set and the guy leans over as he's introducing Boots to some of the people and he says, now this guy's not a Christian. Okay, Boots is, is not and doesn't claim to be him. I don't mind saying that because he tells me he's not. He said he admired that I talked to the big skipper. That's how he, he said this. <laughs> but the guy leans over to Boots and says, Boots, how do you want me to introduce you?
1: In other words, the guy was
0: embarrassed to introduce Booth as a school teacher, which is what he was, because these people wouldn't, wouldn't revere that. And he didn't want to embarrass him by, by calling him something lowly. I was proud of what Booth told me. He said, you tell him I'm a school teacher. You know, that, that's what he wanted to be known as. That's what he was. Well, in some circles, for whatever reason, the hometown makes a difference. When you hear somebody's from Watson, Louisiana, you get an impression in your mind. When you hear somebody's from Bunky, or you hear somebody's from wherever, Houston, Texas, you get an impression in your mind. The same thing happened to Jesus. But let me ask you something. Prophets and people of God have to be from somewhere, right? Which one of you chose the town you would be born in? Judah was born in Baton Rouge. Gabriel was born in Lafayette. Did they have anything to do with that? Do you think that Gabriel, it would be fair to judge him based on what you see in Lafayette? Oh, he'll never amount to anything. After all, he was, he was born in
1: Lafayette.
0: Is that fair? But people do that all the time, huh? They say, golly, he's from so-and-so. He's from that place. They did the same thing to Jesus. Look at some other ways. That, uh, that's Just turn to Mark 6. So from here, you'll go John. I'm sorry, if we'll hang a left and go backwards through Luke to Mark. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. And in Mark six, which is on page uh, eleven fifteen, says Jesus left there, six one Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What what's this wisdom that has been given him that even that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Have you ever been judged by your occupation before? I one time was interested in the Gideons. Everybody know who the Gideons are? I thought they did a neat thing. They put Bibles in hotel rooms. The first Bible I ever remember being given, and I'm sure there were others, so if one of my relatives hears this and gave me a Bible when I was born, I hope they don't get upset. But one of the first times I remember receiving a Bible was in a Lutheran school. The Gideons showed up somewhere around second, third grade. And they put a New Testament in my hand. You know what? I still have it. It's on my dresser. I thought that was a neat thing. So, when I became a Christian, I was interested in the Gideons. I'm not saying this to defame the Gideons. I already said they do great things. I was told that because of my profession, I couldn't join the Gideons. You know what? I was an electrician's helper. And it's for professionals. I wasn't qualified to be in the Gideons. Now, is that sizing up? Now, you have to be discriminant. You, you can't run a Christian school and let a Muslim be the principal, can you? No. But we need to be very careful in what way we're discriminant. You know, to have discriminating taste used to be a good thing. I mean, you like the nicer things in life. But when that discriminating taste applies in a negative way towards others, it becomes something that's bad. When it's placed on someone without merit, it's bad, isn't it? You know, If Judah has a real problem stealing we would all agree he probably ought not be the guy that takes the offering out of the box and brings it to the bank. Okay? That's, that's one, you, am I discriminating against him? No, I'm using wisdom. But because when Judah was in first grade, he took a piece of gum out of his mother's purse and now he's 45 years old and uh, has never repeated that, is it fair for him to wear that label his whole life? Now here is Jesus, an anointed man of God, the most anointed man of God that has ever lived. And the first things I'm telling you about him is, he came from a place that wasn't very impressive. And now they say, wait, he's doing Fen, Where did he get this? Isn't this a carpenter, though? Now, let me ask you something. When you're in a stoplight, a guy walks by the crosswalk and he's in a three piece suit. <coughs> he's pulling behind him his laptop and maybe he's got his legal briefs under his arm. Are you concerned and reach over and lock the door? Now it's four construction workers. One doesn't have on a shirt. And he's walking by and he's got a tattoo on his arm. Do you rush over and lock the door real quick? See, we label in all kind of ways and it gets us in trouble. You will overlook somebody that is the next great person of God because of what your eyes tell you. Now, immediately your mind ought to be racing through biblical people like David, the last to be picked among his brothers. We need to be careful that we don't overlook people. Now, They said carpenter. What else did they say? My Catholic friends that read that hear this CD in Lafayette will love this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, here's another thing that happens. Uh, I'm sure all of you are the shining stars in your family. But there are people that perhaps are not as innately gifted as you are, that are the least in their families. What is it like to grow up and be one of ten or twelve or six or seven or whatever it is, and maybe all of your brothers and sisters going to be diplomats? All of the people around you going to do great things and you don't. What kind of pressure is that put on you? Listen to what they're saying about Jesus though. Hey, isn't this the carpenter? Don't we know his mom? Don't we know what family he comes from? How could this guy be a great man of God if we know where he's from? What if these sisters are not good women? You know? What if one of them works in a brothel? What if this family is not a family of political account? This guy couldn't be anybody, could he? Think about that. When you see somebody that that runs for president don't they examine what family they came from, what their background was? In fact, it's become a political ploy. I've even heard it in the vice presidential debates. Now, it's so rare that this happened that if they can point to something quite common in their background, they do. (laughs) Because you expect them to come from untold wealth and political connections and all of those things. So if they can point to the fact that dad only had a high school education, they do. They emphasize it and they use it for political gain. When you meet somebody, do you think, yeah, well, I know his dad and I know his sister and, uh, you know, they were hellions so this guy, he's, he's not any good. Does it, Do those thoughts cross your mind? Do you judge people by where they're from? By their occupation? Do you judge people by their family? All these things were done to Jesus and look how he turned out. How about your physical appearance? You know, they, they've done study after study after study and It's true. Since it's true, we need to learn to deal with it because it is. If you are good-looking, and all of you are, but those of us like myself that are not, when you interview, you know, if you're good-looking, you're going to make more money? You're more likely to get a job? What does that tell you? People are pretty darn superficial, aren't they? So, knowing that about human beings, when you're dealing with people in the kingdom, do you pay more attention to somebody that seems to have it all together and maybe they don't have buck teeth and uh, they have a modern hairstyle? Are you more inclined to give them attention and to talk to them than somebody who's not? What does Isaiah 53 tell us about Jesus? He had no beauty or majesty to draw men to Him. Jesus didn't come from a hometown that was popular. Jesus didn't come from a family that was connected. Jesus didn't have an occupation that was even... Respectable. Now, in his day, carpenters probably were. But how about Smith Wigglesworth? Uh, This guy I quote all the time because I love him. He was a war horse for God. I mean, you know, he just didn't know how to take no for an answer from anybody. He pushed until he got what he was after, and I admire that. Uh, My favorite quote from him is, The man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man that merely has an argument. In other words, he had experienced something about God that he could care less what everybody else's arguments were. He was going to push until he got Do you know what his profession was? How many of you want to go and show up on a Sunday morning to hear a preacher whose background is a plumber? A plumber with no formal Bible training. A plumber. And did that make him any less powerful for God? Well, I guess after he raised 20-something people from the dead that I know of, <laughs> You, you could change your opinion. I've heard it said all my life, to be a plumber, all you have to know is that things roll downhill, left is loose and right is tight and paydays on Friday. Well, apparently Smith knew a little more than that, huh? See, we need to be very careful not to label people and not to uh, limit their potential based on what we see. You don't like it when it's done to you. Has it been true about you? See, I remember when my reputation was that I was a violent young man headstrong, stuck in my ways, unwilling to bend to anyone else's will. Is some of that still true? Of course it is. I'm working to weed it out. But has that defined the rest of my life? Not at all. In fact, people are shocked when they meet me and haven't seen me in a while. And the same is true of you. Because we're changing. This may surprise you about Paul. The same guy who wrote, we have learned not to regard people according to the worldly point of view. In 2 Corinthians, hang a right. I'm sorry if this is not uh, dazzling you with oration. I hope that this hits home because it needs to change our behavior. The single biggest thing that could hurt you in your friendships with people and in ministry life is to identify a weakness in another human being and characterize them by that weakness. Do we do it? Sure we do. guy stands up and says something that makes a fool out of him in front of people. Seven years later, all you remember about him is that he said something that made a fool of himself. How many people do you know that can't wait to get out of high school and get away from that peer group where they had a fresh and clean start because they did something in that high school time period? And every example that rushes to my mind is something too horrible to mention on CD. But I remember being in the 7th grade before high school. And one young lady would get known for something that followed her all the way through high school. And when you think about it, it was something she screwed up and did for 15 minutes. You know? You think about a young man who did something that probably everybody else did, but he got caught. And they knew about this through his entire, it, it formed their, their entire adolescent life. And so they couldn't wait until they got... There was a woman in my high school that was homely. Now, that might surprise you, but every once in a while there are some people that are just homely. And she was. But something happened in her senior year. A couple of weeks before she left, she started thinking about where she was going and that she wanted a new start in life. And so she made some changes to her appearance. And you know what? This girl that had been an outcast in high school for no other reason than her appearance was not appealing to other people, when she got rid of some glasses and did some things with her hair and began to dress a little differently, went and had a thriving social life in college. And there's something that... I mean, we're watching Extreme Makeover and some of these things because you like to see people get a second chance. So what happens when those of us that have been given a ministry of reconciliation, those of us that our purpose on the earth is to tell people, there is a God who will reconcile everything you did wrong and give you credit for it. There is a God of whom I am an ambassador who cares about you and wants to give you not just a second start, but a third or three hundredth or six hundredth if you need it. And we don't start over with people. We identify people by their weaknesses. And we say, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's Matthew, the same guy that dropped a ball. Matt never dropped a ball in a football game. I did, <laughs> you know. And we identify people by their weaknesses. How much worse is that? You all in Second Corinthians 10? Yeah. Yeah. Because I
1: did it every
0: day on chance. chance. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, since while you all are turning there, on the note of athletics, I started athletics later in life than most people did, uh, you know. I was kind of a sickly kid. I was born premature. I had all kind of issues until about 7th grade. And then I began to bloom. And uh, because when I went out uh, for football, uh, kind of the easiest thing to do was to play the line, uh, I thought that's all I could do. And I remember towards the end of an 8th grade year, in practice, somebody put a football in my hand told me to run one way and I ran over everybody on the field. That helped me break away from a label so that when I went into high school, I could do different things. But most of the time, and that's so juvenile and silly that I even mention that, but most of the time, the labels people wear are not so easy to break away from. And the longer you wear it, the more you define yourself by it. Not just other people, but you begin to think of it. My wife was told in grade school that she wasn't any good at math. So in high school... Late into high school, she still believed she wasn't any good at math. That's a label somebody else put on her, but she accepted it. We have an obligation not to put labels on people and friends. You have an obligation not to accept them yourselves, even if it's true about you. Every man can be better tomorrow than he is today, and the gospel bears that out. Our hope is founded upon it. Listen how some thought of Paul. How do you how do you think of Paul? When you think of Paul, how do you think of him? A champion. A champion. This guy is awesome! He's as good as it gets! Listen to how these people thought of Paul. At least some might have thought of him this way. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 9, it says, I do not want to seem to be uh, trying to frighten you with my letters. This is page 1288. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Can you imagine saying that about the apostle Paul? Now, I told you, Jesus, his hometown was not one of regard. His family was not one of regard. And his physical appearance didn't have anything in it of regard. Well, we know Paul is a champion because we know the end of the story. But when you first met Paul, would his name impress you? He's little. Small. You know, we have a history of electing taller leaders over shorter leaders. Yeah, I know. That is scary this particular season. You know that most not most, that's not fair to say. there is a pattern throughout history of choosing people of stature over people of limited stature. On a subconscious level, we identify stature with strength. So here's Paul. he shows up and his name means little, and I don't know. Paul might have been nine feet tall, but history uh, in history, what does that mean? Some people have regarded Paul as a guy of slight stature. All I know is that this Corinthian church that he founded, you know, that he worked in, he didn't actually found the church at Corinth, but that he caused to grow, and that he mentored, there were people that thought he was unimpressive and timid. And other times he says, I may not be a trained speaker, but guys, I do have knowledge. This is Paul talking. Is it any wonder that five chapters before this one, he says, hey, I had to learn not to regard people according to a worldly point of view. He's asking them not to regard him in a worldly way. Now, his name meant small, and he may have been unimpressive, but did that define his life? What really got me to think about all this is John. Do you know that the young man John in Mark 3.17 is called a son of thunder? Now, we read that and we kind of like it. We think that's neat. That was not a compliment. (laughs) It was not a compliment. How did he get the name Son of Thunder? I don't know, but in Luke 9.54, we begin to see perhaps one of the reasons why. This is where they go into a town they aren't received right away. And John says, <laughs> You will call down fire on them, Jesus? I suspect that this young man was full of the same things that a lot of young men are. He may have even had a quick temper. But did that define his life? Is that how you remember John? Why is it that when you meet someone then, You think about them according to the recent events of their life or the one bad thing that they did. There are people in my life that I struggle with this with. I try not to and hopefully I'm succeeding because you have a bad experience with someone and you define them by that. Or you find out somebody has a weakness. Maybe they're not so good at such and such. Let's be honest. You know, the kid that had glasses that didn't make the layup, you know, did that define him as something... I'm trying to think of a word that's not bad to, to say. As a, a geek forever? And why? Why did that? Why is anybody that's different from you? And they don't even have to be different from you. Why is everybody else wrong? And somehow we're supposed to be exempt from that. And then if people have applied those things to you, why did you accept it? Why do you live under it? Is it scriptural? Is, is, is that... Is that something, is that a precept that's in the Word that you should receive? See, here's the problem. When there's an outspoken atheist, for instance, and he becomes known as an outspoken atheist, what happens when that man begins to have thoughts that are inclined towards Christ, but all anybody knows him as is an atheist? It makes it hard for him to make the conversion because he doesn't want to be viewed as a hypocrite because he's made a name for himself as an atheist. Well, what happens when he wants to have faith? Who are the first people that throw stones at Him and says His conversion is not real? Christians. The first people that threw stones at Jesus were the people that knew Him. Why? Because they knew Him. Have you noticed that if I say, next week we're going to have a speaker, and He's coming all the way from Southeast Asia to hear, to share with you, in your mind, he just, he rose some. I mean, if he came all the way from Asia, it's gotta be better than the guy coming from across the street, right? That's, that's how the concept of guest preaching got started. It was to raise attendance.
1: Somebody's coming all the way
0: from the furthest reaches of Africa. And you think, oh well, I better get there and hear that. Why? Is he any more anointed than the guy that you go to Sunday school with? You know, I mean, we have this idea that whoever you know, whoever you're familiar with, oh, that's just them. But somebody that you don't know, from a faraway place that you don't know anything about, they, they could be a real champion, right? That's how we get into pastor worship with these guys on TV. You don't know anything about them except what they want you to know about them. And so you see, oh wow, he had a vision. What? Is there not guys in your church that have had visions?
1: He speaks
0: with authority and He's a preacher and all this. And that gifting doesn't exist anywhere else. Let's be honest. You've never seen anything bad about them and so you look at them more highly than you should. Is the guy that you don't know anything about worthy of more honor than the one that you're familiar with the weaknesses and yet still see good things? Let's be honest about that. Jesus wasn't defined... By the labels people put on him. Paul wasn't defined by the labels people put on him. And John wasn't defined by the labels people put on him. But when I speak this word, and Mandy, I know you've heard this, so you don't answer. But when I speak this word, (laughs) you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Thomas. "Doubting." Doubting. How long ago did Thomas live? 2,000 years ago, and when I speak the man's name, what did you come to mind with? Doubting. Now, in the Gospel of John, you see the life of Thomas. You don't see it in the other Gospels. You see only a mention of him. In fact, if I asked you to name the original 12 disciples, probably most of you couldn't do it, although you're Bible students. And the ones that you could name, Thomas, if he came to mind, would only come to mind because he was a doubter. And he sure wouldn't be the first one out of your mouth. Let's look at Thomas's life in the gospel and see whether this label that we have put on him is deserving. And then we'll examine what God would want us to do with labels. In John chapter eleven, from where you are, hang a left. Why are we spending all this time on labeling? Because you miss the potential in the people around you to do great things for God when you regard them according to the flesh. You could look at me. You could look at Mandy. You could I. We know when you look at a child, you have to look at them for what they can be. You know that you have to do that because we've seen too many... In fact, I thought, wow, for this sermon, I ought to get an example of somebody like Alexander Fleming or Winston Churchill or somebody who became a great man. I don't need to. I don't need to because you all know. You all know how many stories there have been like that. We know when we look at a child, you shouldn't label them and condemn their future to whatever you see when they're a child, but we do it to adults all the time. At 20 years old, at 20 years old, have you even begun to tap what God may do in your life? At 40 years old, have you?
1: How about 60?
0: When is it that you are written off as a relic? When is it that you have no more potential or future? Moses began his calling in God at 80 years old. And yet, you will hear from people that are considering Jesus. Well, that works for you. Well, it can work for you too. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've lived my life already. This, I mean, it's too much water under the bridge. Well, how old are you? I'm 50. The men of God did not begin their work until they were older than that. Moses was 80 years old when he began his calling. When you see somebody 80, do you think, oh, this could be the next superstar for God? Or do you think this is the next nursing home recipient? You know, we need to be very careful. Our Bible is predicated on the fact that God does extraordinary things with ordinary people. The problem with Him doing extraordinary things with ordinary people is when you see Him, you don't recognize Him. say, oh, that's just David. He's an ordinary guy. And you have no idea that this might be the guy that prays for your daughter when she's sick and she gets healed. We need to not relegate people according to their natural circumstances. And you need to leave room for people to change their mind. So I was wrong about something. And maybe I was adamantly wrong about it. Give me a break. Give me a chance. Give me the opportunity to repent. Were you not given that opportunity? A young man I love very much in Lafayette, Louisiana is known by his peers as the guy that walked in and said, I'm a prophet to the nations.
1: Is that fair?
0: Yeah, it was a stupid thing to say. Truthfully, it's been blown way well out of proportion of the way he actually said it. Secondly, he's walked with God 12 years since then that erased that. But when you think of him, that's what people remember. Now, I don't know why you can put 12 people in a room, 20 people in a room, and for some reason, 9 out of 10 times, one of those 20 is the one that's easily picked on. I don't know why. It happens, though, and the body of Christ. is as bad about it as the world. Gary Williams is a good friend of mine. I love him. I respect him. The first time I met him, I wanted to run from him. I did not see immediately in him the potential that God saw in him. Because you know what? This may surprise all of you. I hope it's not shocking. My vision's a little more limited than God's. Now, as I began to see a hunger in the Word for him... I saw in him a hunger for the Word. Immediately, my whole perspective about him changed. We became the closest of friends. Mandy Wakefield's here this morning. The very first time I met her, I wanted to throw her out of my house. She was a little bit abrasive. But immediately when I began to see a quality in her, a love for the Word, all of a sudden it began to melt my heart. Now, praise God, I didn't react badly to either one of those people, but I just told you the success stories. I didn't tell you about the ones that I did. And you know what? They don't even make a dent because you don't realize all the people you relegate to something less than what you think is good because you don't have anything to do with them. You push them off into some other area, somebody else to work with, and most of the time, God has to use somebody else to work with them. You know why? You don't see any value or potential in them. And so you don't develop it. You don't work at it. You better watch out people that could be lifelong friends, people that could be a kickstand for you in a time of trouble, could get removed from your life and put in someone else's because you don't see value in them. Now remember, you were born again because God saw value in you when nobody else did. But then we turn and say, oh well, He'll never amount to anything. I don't mean this uh, as biting or condemning to anybody. I just can't think of an example where I did it or I would use me. But it was said about somebody that they could be replaced by a rock one time. Oh, yeah, well, he could be replaced by a rock. Do you know how sinful that is? Do you know how sin- And that guy, he was bought by the blood of Jesus. The most precious substance on the planet was used to purchase his life. So could he be replaced by a rock? Listen to what you are saying in an inadvertent way. You were insulting the blood of Christ because this guy was valuable enough for the most precious substance on the planet to be poured out to redeem Him. And you're saying His value is equal to that of a rock. Now, it was a figure of speech and it was not truly intended. But think about how sinful that is. We need to regard each other. We need to regard each other as something that is precious. You need to look at your brother or sister for all the potential that they can be in Jesus. And you know what? An amazing thing happens. An amazing thing happens when you begin to see potential in people. They begin to live up to it. My son's sitting in the back of the room and if I tell him every day he'll never amount to anything, that he won't do anything good, what do you think the chances of his future being bright are? But if I tell Him every day, Son, you can do anything. God's got great plans for your life. The God of the universe will empower you to do whatever you set your mind to. All the power in the universe is available at your disposal. When you pray, Son, mountains can move. Do you believe then that that limits his potential? No, we might raise a child that will be the next one to shake the earth for God. And it's easy to see in your own children that potential. But when you see the bum laying on the side of the street, that was some mother's child. And we see no potential in him. Just throw him away. Truthfully, why do we compartmentalize? Why do we segment? We're looking for a way to value ourselves. Well, Matt is this way, so he's not as good as me. Now, you don't say that, but that's, that's the reality. And Mandy's that way, so she doesn't begin to measure up to me. And Bobby's that way. And Steve's that way. And Judah's that way, and Jen's that way, and David's that way. And really what you're saying is, look how great I am! In the world, we look at, at the label we want to portray. It's a facade that we wear. Since we know everybody's labeling, you show people what you want them to know about you. I got money. I'm a high road. Hey, let me buy your meal. Not because I care about you. I want you to think highly of me. We buy cars to project images. We buy clothes to project images. Well, in Christ, we wear no such superficial things. But because of that, don't think of people poorly. I get sick when I think of plastic Christians. I do. I've known a lot of them and I aspire not to be one. It's not to say there's anything wrong with nice things, but that does not speak at all about the individual. You can wear a nice suit and be a rotten person. You can have a beautiful home and not have a home. The house be gorgeous on the outside and inside be as dull and as dry as they come. We need to learn to value the things that God does and see potential where He does. Are y'all in John 11? Y'all thought of Thomas as doubting Thomas and so have I. And I've preached about this before, but when I began to think about the book of John and labels that people wear and how unfair it is, I also had a conversation with somebody in the last week or two, that I truly believe, I truly see potential for great things in the kingdom of God. You have to be careful when you say that about people because there are times that that can go straight to the head. And you don't, you don't want that. We're all supposed to be clothed in humility. But when I began to hear this testimony uh, from this person, I, I realized that one of the things that had hindered their walk is... Somebody close to them didn't see that same potential. And immediately I began to think in my mind of all the people that had placed labels on me that didn't see my potential. And you know what? My closest friends were not esteemed by my other closest friends. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, that is strange how the devil works to limit people's callings by labels. And if you're not careful, you'll believe them. John 11. Verse 15. Verse 14. So then, he told them this plainly. I love John. He writes things in a way that I understand. He said this plainly. (laughs) Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. And I didn't read enough of this for you to get the right context. The context is, there's a guy named Lazarus who's a friend of Jesus and known to the disciples. He's sick, and Jesus receives a warning that he's sick and near death. Jesus purposely waits until he dies. And then he goes to him. And when he gets there, it's been three days or four days that he's been dead. Now, Jesus is talking to the disciples about this, and he said, Look, our friend Lazarus is sick, and you're not understanding the things I've been telling you, so I'm going to say this plainly. He's dead, and I'm glad that I wasn't there. But we're going to go to him now. Thomas hears this. Now, you can say he's dull. You can say whatever you want. It's okay. I want you to see the man's heart. And he says, Then let's go be with him. I'm ready to die with you too, Lord. He said, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I tell you, I'm just going to tell on myself here. I have two notes written out to the side of this. One is a spiritual note. And the other is not so spiritual. It's revealing about me. I don't ever mark things out of my Bible, even if they're wrong, because it teaches me about me. One's much older than the other. That's good. I can see progress. The oldest note, you know what it says next to this? Thomas, always in the flesh. That's what I wrote. It says, Thomas, always in the flesh. Why? Because he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying something spiritual, and Thomas didn't get it. So I wrote, Thomas, always in the flesh. Now, I can look, and the funny thing about that, it's like pointing finger at somebody. You know, I see some pointing back at me. This is more revealing about me at the time than it is Thomas. You know what the next note says? Thomas, ready to die with Jesus. Now, you all all esteemed Paul, right? Paul was a champion, somebody says. In Acts 21, you see Paul say, I'm not only ready to be bound in Jerusalem, I'm ready to go there and die. And we esteem Him for that because He was ready to die for the Gospel. He would, do, he would give up His own life if it meant establishing the Gospel. That's Acts 21.13. But here Thomas says, I'm ready to go die. And we don't think a thing about it. You don't remember that, do you? Now, let, let's think about this. Thomas is there with Jesus and He's ready to die. He's not been filled with the Holy Ghost yet. He's not received all the teaching yet. He's not seen all the miracles and all the power yet at this point in John. I mean, he's seen a bunch that Paul knew about at his point. His revelation wasn't as great. He's ready to go dive in. We esteem Paul as a champion and we look down on Thomas because he didn't understand. Are you more prone to examine the weakness of a human being and identify them by that or the strength of a human being? Why is it that David could be brilliant but made... uh, Let's say this the other way. Why is it that David could be athletic but maybe not so smart. And we call David a great, uh, great man because he's an athlete. But if it worked the other way, if he was not very athletic, but brilliant, you know, he, of, of no uh, regard, you know, except in certain circles. Think about that. I know this gets confusing and I stumble over my words and don't, don't throw me away for it. What I'm trying to say is that we identify weakness in a human being. That's all we see. It shouldn't be that way. Now, Thomas says he's ready to die with Jesus the first time he's mentioned as having conversation in the, in the Gospels. Every other time he's been mentioned in our list. The first time you see him, yeah, he doesn't understand, but he's ready to go die with Jesus. That's, that's a Paul-like quality, isn't it? Turn to John 14. A couple pages to the right. This is another one he's criticized for. Jesus just gets through teaching about going to be with the Father and making a place for us. Chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. What we usually focus on on this fifth verse is that Thomas didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And it's true. He didn't understand it. You know who else didn't? the other 11. Philip speaks up a little later and says, hey, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Which is the worst statement? After Jesus says that, Philip says, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. We don't know him as doubting Philip, do we?
1: Yeah.
0: We we see him as a great man of God. This guy, uh, we see as a doubter. You know what strikes me about it now that I'm looking at Thomas in the right light though? When he didn't understand, he spoke up. How many people sit out there don't understand what's going on but are scared to death somebody will think they're stupid so they don't say a thing because they don't want to wear a stupid label? We need to create an environment where people can speak freely and express their heart without fear that you will judge them. You know, I heard a story about a man who sat in church all of his life, 20-something years and didn't know what a Jew was. And I thrown stones at that because the guy was... a. leader, I believe. Well, he was a leader. And uh, it occurred to me this morning while I was studying, perhaps that guy didn't have the kind of Christians around him where he felt like he could ask a basic question without them throwing a stone at him. Because if he let it slip that he didn't really know, they would think less of him. How many of you, if you find out Billy Graham's tomorrow had a lustful thought, would think less of Billy Graham? You know? You know? So, what kind of position does that place him in? Can he come to you and say, "Hey, let's pray. I'm struggling with sin." Yeah. We lift people up on pedestals, then we throw them away when they fall. You know, and half the time, the things that they're struggling with, same things you are. You just know about it with them, and you don't admit it to yourself. So Thomas at least spoke up. You know what else I think is worth mentioning? Turn to Proverbs eight ten. Keep your finger in John. To get to Proverbs, you want to turn to the middle of your Bible, which is Psalms. And uh, Proverbs is right after Psalms. And on page 711 in the Thompson chain, you see this verse. This on the note of him speaking up. Uh, 10. 810. It says, "...Choose my instruction instead of silver." Knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. You're supposed to choose knowledge. You're supposed to choose wisdom over gold, over rubies, over those things. So, can we really, rightfully, if we believe that, be upset with Thomas for asking a stupid question? No, to him, to get it right was important. It wasn't stupid. And yet, we're going to identify him as the carnal guy who never understands, right? Okay. In John 20, we get to our point about Thomas. And in John 20, that is uh, page 1205. Doubting Thomas. Thomas the doubter. Here's the Scripture. Everybody, if you... If you couldn't remember John 11, if you couldn't remember John 14, the one scripture that you might be able to find about Thomas is this one. In John 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas called Didymus. I think it's funny that John says that about him a couple times. You times. Know? Thomas called Didymus. Both, both of those words, one is Hebrew and the other is Greek, and they mean twin. All right. I don't know whether he had a twin. Some people suppose that one of the apostles was a twin brother. But the point is, John writing this book, which is only 20-something uh, chapters long, has to, re- has to remind you which, which guy this is, because he doesn't play a prominent enough role in the Gospels for you to really remember. You know, now, this is Thomas, the one called Didymus. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you remember the guy from John 11, John 14. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. Now, you say, golly, how could he say something like that? You know how he could say something like that? Did you see the movie Passion of Christ? What if you had watched that? What if a week before you had seen the man's nails driven through his hands and through his feet and you had watched somebody you love be beaten to the point of death? How readily would you believe that he was up and walking around and everything was okay? You know, and the others, why are they full of such faith? They just saw him. Thomas wasn't there. See, the man with the experience is never at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. Those other apostles had experienced Jesus. Mm -hmm. Thomas is saying, until I've had that experience, I won't believe it. And I don't blame Him. I wouldn't have either. Mm -hmm. Think about this with your lost friends. You say, oh, you just have to have faith. You just have to believe. Why do you have faith and why do you believe? Something happened in your life that caused you to. Quit acting like you were so super spiritual that you got it and nobody else did. Something happened to you that caused you to get it. I was knocked to my knees in my room. If that had not happened, I would be just as blind as some of the people that are walking around. And yet we act like we're better in some way. They're doubters, but we're believers. We're the fellowship of believers. They're all bad. You're so good. Drop the labels. You've had an experience they haven't had. Pray that they get the experience. This is how the Jews could search the Scripture day and night thinking that by them they had eternal life, but missed Jesus when they came. They couldn't look past the labels in His life. Now, how do you hope a Jew gets saved today? It's not going to be from your Christian evangelization. He has to have an experience with God that shows him. How do regular people get saved? Something in their life has to draw them towards God and he has to show himself in some kind of way. Now, am I saying the faults with God if they don't see it? No, the faults with them for not being receptive. Because the creation is pouring forth speech. God is trying to find a way to get through to people. He said, well, why didn't everybody just get slammed with a vision? I don't know. I wish it was that way. It's not. I don't know why. When you're thinking about this experience, think about the state you were in where you were called. Would you noble? Hmm. Were you rich? Did you come from a great family, great town? Did everybody love you and revere you everywhere? Not many people are saved that way. So why do you look at other people that are in similar circumstances but not yet saved and think, no, better I'm much tougher? Why do you let the guy who's a drunk in your town become known as the town drunk? Or the guy who's a liar as so-and-so the liar? Why? We need to look at those people and go, wow, God could change that guy and it would be a great testimony. We need to see people for what they can be instead of what they are. That's what the Gospel does with you. That's what the Gospel does with this whole world. Hebrews says, hey, at the present, we don't see everything subject to Him, but we know that it will be. You need to learn to speak in faith about people around you. I'm not talking about being naive. You know, I realize there are times when I'm an optimist and there's not a reason for it. I've just learned it's a better way to go through life. You want to be around people that have hope for you, that have vision for you, that think you can become something. And you know what? God will surprise you. He does it. Who would have ever thought that an adulteress, a violent welder without a college education would do the kind of work that Buzz Tremay has done in our lives? Would you have picked him for that? But there's not a person in here that can doubt the man was called and the man has ministered with great effect. But you probably would not have chosen him off of a bar stool to come and be your pastor. Now I pick somebody that's close to us because you know him. You can't do that with somebody on TV that you don't know. So when you see faults in people's lives, quit throwing them away. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir. Don't throw them away. Look at people for what they can be in Jesus. You know, there are a lot of people that have gone the other way, that are sinful, that are uh, outspokenly sinful because they're running from the calling of God that's on their life. And so when you tell them about how wicked they are, it's of no effect. You need to tell them what they're called to do that is great. You know how many pastors, people that are called to shepherd the sheep, have used those talents to be the ringleader in a worldly situation? Lots. 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 And we look at them and act like they could never be saved instead of looking at them and say, hey, brother, I see that the devil's corrupting the talent God gave you. You're called to pastor. You know, we need to look at people for what they can be. In John twenty twenty four, we saw Thomas doubted. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See My hands. Reach out your hand and put it into My side. Stop doubting and believe. Still, doubting Thomas, right? What does this tell you about our God, though? Does He throw away people that doubt? No, He looks for ways to reassure them so they can have faith. It's like the man who says, Lord, if You can help me. And Jesus looked at him and said, if You can. Everything's possible for him who believes. He didn't throw the guy away for not understanding. He told him, and the guy says, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. We need to leave some room for people that have unbelief that the Lord helps them. Don't throw them away. Because the next words out of Thomas' mouth are the most profound in the entire Gospel of John. What do you love Peter for? What's the one thing that Peter said to Jesus that all of us remember? You are the Christ! You are the Son of the living God! And Jesus said, oh wow, you're a rock. On this rock I'm going to build my church. This guy, Thomas, goes a step further. He doesn't say you're the Son of God. He doesn't say you're the Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. He's the first guy in all of the Bible to call Jesus both Lord and God. He understood He wasn't just a Son of God. He understood that He wasn't just an anointed Christ. He understood that Jesus was God. He doubted so that you don't have to doubt. And yet, we call Him the doubter. He had a weakness. Do you not have weaknesses? I'm not talking about Thomas. I'm talking about the guy at your work sitting around the corner from you. That is foul, that you don't like. There are a bunch of them, I know. I work in the world just like you do. You know, when I said that, a guy came to mind. That when he comes to the office, when he comes to our office, I have Mandy call me on my cell phone and warn me he's coming so that I can avoid the office until he leaves. Yeah! That's right! I'm a great guy, huh? I recently told her, I don't think that I could endure another lunch with this man. And you know what? God might have me in His life if I could just wake up and see it because He has potential in the Kingdom of God that I don't see. How many times have you been surprised by a dramatic conversion? The world will tell you a lot. Leopard never changes his spots. I've lived to see leopards change their spots. And yet I still have a problem when I see a leopard believing it can be anything other than a leopard. If we can't believe it, how do you expect other people to believe it? That's why they call your religion a crutch for women and children. That's why they look, because half the time we don't express our beliefs in a way that is loving. Galatians 5-6 says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. So what do you think says when you look at somebody and say, "Yeah, well, he's a heathen." Oh yeah, that'll make them run to your Christ, won't it? Like Gandhi said, "I've examined your Christ and him I like. It's his followers I have a problem with." Me too. Never thought Gandhi and I would agree, but we do. My Lord and my God. You can compare that with what Peter said, and don't tell me that it doesn't compare. He went a step further. And yet, Peter's the king of the Catholic Church, right? Obviously, I'm picking. Peter's the great man. Thomas had a bigger revelation than he did. My Lord and my God. We need to adopt a view. The same view that the Lord has. We need to view one another as powered by the potential for the Lord. You need to look at somebody and see what they can be in Christ instead of what they are today. We're going to look at just maybe one more example. Anybody remember what time we started? Okay. If you will turn with me to judges, I hate to ever preach and not get in the Old Testament some. What are we not going to call Thomas anymore? The doubter. Yeah, I did him. He's the original P. Diddy. T. Diddy. T. Diddy. <laughs> In Judges, uh, this is page uh, 241. Chapter 6. 241. Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges.
1: Joshua
0: is 241. Oh, sorry. One more book over. 277.
1: 272.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem with giving page numbers, isn't it? I think, and I, I didn't have time to find this this morning. I didn't have an internet connection where I was. But John G. Lake, I believe that it was his mother that cried out one time Lord, what is my calling? And apparently she was uh, from the Northeast. And, you know, every once in a while, people from the Northeast uh, are known by a little more abrupt personality. Not that I want all Northeasterners to wear that label. It's what I'm preaching against this morning. But she kind of exemplified that. And she said that the Lord spoke to her and said to raise your children. She had four boys. She uh, may have had more, but she had at least four boys. She said, what do you think I'm going to do? Drown them? You know, which is uh, kind of a... Uh, unusual sense of humor, you know. In other words, well, I know that, but what do you want me to do? Right? I think all mothers can relate to that. You hear people whine, say, uh, "I have no no identity." You know, my life is wrapped up in my husband's and raising the children. That's right. <laughs> it's supposed to be my life wrapped up in Christ and doing His will. And uh, this woman was struggling for what her calling was. The Lord said, "Raise your children." What do you think I'm going to do, drown them? She had no idea that her four boys, one of which was John G. Lake, would all start revivals on different continents. See, we don't know what tomorrow holds for the people that are around us. And God does extraordinary things with ordinary people that ought to give you encouragement when you see somebody and maybe you don't see a lot there. God might. You need to take a heavenly perspective. We do it with other things. Think about this. What does Paul call his his troubles in the present? Light and momentary troubles. Why could Paul say that? Because they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Paul could look at a natural circumstance, weigh it against the eternity, and look at the natural circumstance in a different light. Why can't we do that with people? Why can't we say, I know Eric talks too much, and he's often rude, and a lot of the time crude, and all of those things. But, we see that he's called to things in the kingdom. And then you view Eric as something more than just a Neanderthal. You know, and why can't we do that with each other? And not just with the people that you're automatically drawn to and like. How about those that rub you a little bit wrong? I'm sure you don't rub anybody wrong. None of you in here have a personality that can be hard to deal with at times. In Judges, chapter 6, verse 1. We'll close with, uh, with this teaching because I think everybody's got this again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord you know the nation of Israel is like any other person I mean the nation can be personified in the man Israel went through a cycle of doing good with God and then not so good with God but we don't define Israel by the times they didn't do good with God we define them by the name God gave them which is prince with God you know our walk our worth is not, not measured by performance It's measured by potential. That's how I got the name or the message. If it was measured by performance, none of us would uh, would have arrived at the goal. But since it's measured by potential, what you can be in Christ, what He will do in you, when you view somebody as the workmanship of God, you can esteem them highly. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves and mountain clefts Caves, and strongholds. Wherever, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Well, you know from last week's message, some storms, the perfect storms, come from God. This was done to the Israelites by the Midianites so that the Israelites would cry out to God. But think about the state they're in. They are hiding in mountain clefts. They are hiding in valleys. These are the people that are called to be chief among the nations. And they're hiding, fearful of the Midianites who God told them to drive out. And the Amalekites who God told them to drive out. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. Where was Gideon the first time he's mentioned in the Bible? Hiding. He's hiding in a winepress. He's hiding. Now, there's a word for that. It starts with a C. He's hiding. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What in Gideon's life would cause you to believe at this point, knowing what you know about him, that he is a mighty warrior? Not a thing. He's a cowardly farmer. He's not a mighty warrior. He is hiding in a threshing floor from the Midianites. Threshing wheat. The Lord said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, to a cowardly farmer. But sir, so, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I come from Nazareth. Not really. In Manasseh. And I am the least of my family. And my family is, my family's not a big one and then out of my family I, I'm kind of the least. Then the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Here's what I want you to get. We're going to close. I have more to do, but we're... I think you've got the point. Number one, when God shows up and first speaks to Gideon, he's a cowardly farmer, but God calls him a mighty warrior. You don't see in Gideon right away overwhelming faith. He questions the Lord. say. Hey. And later he throws out fleeces. God has to prove this to Gideon a multiple a number of ways before Gideon will even be obedient. But God saw in Gideon something that you would not have seen and I would not have seen if we were there. We would have seen a cowardly farmer who questioned the Lord repeatedly. One time throws out fleece on the ground and says, I want it wet. And it is. And then the next time throws it out and says, I want it dry. And it is. But doesn't understand. And keeps questioning. The church would have thrown him away in an instant. They would have relegated him to the unfaithful, to the pagans, to somebody who was not a a godly guy. But God saw something in him from the first time He called him. And He called him a mighty warrior. And from God's perspective, it didn't matter that Gideon had all of these weaknesses because Hebrews says God takes weaknesses and turns them into strength. What is the one overriding factor in Gideon's life that made him successful, those of you that know the story? The one overriding factor is found in this passage we just read. God was with him. Now, what do you know about every Christian you will ever meet? God is with with him. So it doesn't matter whether they look like cowardly farmers. You can look at them and call them mighty warriors. Because God is with them. He calls things that are not as though they were. You can look at the self-proclaimed atheist and say, wow, you're going to be a beautiful believer. You can look at the guy that has laughed at the kingdom of God his whole life and say, you're going to be a powerful advocate for the Lord. So what do you base that kind of faith on, Eric? From people like Saul. Saul. They were killing Christians, putting them in jail, and then became powerful advocates for the Lord. For people like Thomas that were known as doubters. That you, by the way, do you know Thomas brought the Gospel to Parthia, to Persia, and to India and was martyred for it? The first thing I told you about Thomas was what? He was ready to die with the Lord. And he did. The man finished the race well. In parts of India, whether it's legend or not, makes no difference. In parts of India, Christians call themselves... Christians after Thomas. You know why? He's their Paul. Now, what must it say to them when we walk up and say, oh, doubting Thomas? Yeah. We need to learn to look at people like the Lord did. It doesn't matter that they're hiding in threshing floors and are unresponsive to God's Word at first. You can see them for what they are because perhaps God's with them. Stand up, let's pray. Remember, we started with 2 Corinthians 5. Ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is making things right. If you've been reconciled, whatever weaknesses you have, God's taken care of. Ephesians 4 tells you to be clothed with Christ. You've taken off the old and put on the new. Don't look at somebody that's had Christ put on them and try to attribute the old to them. That's to insult Christ. Galatians 6 tells us the same thing. You know who Jesus said is His family? You know, you're often willing to overlook things in your own family. Your child does something bad, and it's okay. He's your boy. Your neighbor's kid does something bad, and he's a bad kid. Right? Jesus said your family is, His family is, those that hear the Word of God and put it into practice. When you meet people that are greatly flawed, but are trying to put the Word of God into practice, give them grace. Give them slack. And if you don't, God won't give you grace. The Scripture is very clear about that. And remember, Galatians 5.6 says the only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through love. I don't care what you believe. You need to show people your love by what you do. And if you don't do that, your religion's pretty worthless. And James says that. Let's pray. Jesus, we love You. Lord God, we ask that You would give us a set of heavenly eyes. That we might see people as You see them. And Lord God, that we might see ourselves as You see us. Holy One, we want sober judgment about our lives. We don't want to believe the lies of the enemy and we don't want to be inflated and think of ourselves more highly than we should. Lord, teach us to have mercy with one another. To leave room for a change of heart in our friends and family. Lord God, we pray that we would view people for all the potential that You see in them
1: and then help them develop it. In the name of Jesus, we offer that up. Amen.